Well, I want to invite you to turn your attention to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. This is a very, very special and very unique chapter of Scripture. It's been called the Hall of Faith, the Heroes of the Faith. These are the uh, cloud of witnesses like in an arena that look upon us as we run our marathon here in the 21st century. These are the men and women who have gone before us in the faith. They challenge us. These are men and women that we will learn of and love even more deeply with deeper affection. Real people in historic time and space that set for us an example of what it means to triumph and be commended by God at the end of their race as we are running our own. They are examples and models of faith and they cheer us on, if you will, just in our hearts. We think, can we keep going? Can we keep enduring? Well, they did and so we should But they did it not in their own strength. They didn't summon within themselves the inner strength of physicality or just having a a human spirit to overcome therein. But by faith, they persevered. And by faith is mentioned over and over and over again as the initiating two words in our English Bibles. It's by faith, by faith, by faith. This is the instrumental use. This is how we persevere. 18 of 23 times, 23 times the word faith is mentioned in this chapter. 18 of them are cast as by faith, by faith, by faith. So it's how we live the Christian life. Chapter 10, we don't shrink back. That was the end of chapter 10. You don't shrink back. You don't throw away your confidence. No, the author puts the accelerator down and says, no, no, it's by faith, by faith, by faith that we run, that we persevere, that we keep going as Christians. This is how we do it. This is the gas in the tank, spiritually speaking, to live for God in a culture that says, quit. Verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. By contrast, it's by faith that we please God. It's how we do it. It's not insignificant that by faith is the leadoff phrase of over half of the first 31 verses that comprise this chapter. Let me say it this way more practically. You have no connection to God except by faith. There is no other means to be connected to the living God than by faith. And this is saving faith, saving faith. It's what we're learning about here. There's, you can't buy your way into God's heart. You can't work your way into God, God's good graces. You can't summon God through a soothsaying religion. You can't whoop up the environment enough to get to God. You can't give enough. You can't serve enough. You can't do enough. You can't even suffer enough to get in God's good favor. You can't coerce God to know you. It's all by faith. That being said, we want to be, as the end of chapter 2 put it, verse 36, the righteous ones that live by faith. How do we do this? 
We need to understand what this faith really is. We need to be able to define it. Hebrews 11, over and over again, reveals to us two dynamics that we're going to learn about for the next couple weeks. One is that true saving faith sees. It sees. And I don't want that to sound too ethereal or too mystical that you can't grab hold of it. We see things that are physically unseeable and we see them in a way where we are tasting them. We're we're seeing heaven in the future as Hebrews 11 talks about Adam, I mean Abraham and Sarah, they they saw a distant homeland and they saw heaven. We're going to learn about this, how they pursued God and went to a foreign land and believed God for a lineage and legacy through Isaac and they saw heaven beyond that. They tasted of it as if they'd been there before. Do you ever think about where you grew up if you didn't grow up here and you say, you know, I can taste the, and smell and feel the environment of what that was like to be there in the lower 48 or wherever, a different part of the world. I can taste that place right now. I can think about that place because I've been there before. Well, as believers, heaven is like that. We look forward to going to a place that when we get there, we'll look around and go, this place is familiar to us somehow because we've tasted of heaven even on this side of that reality. Faith makes unseeable things reality to us. And this sightedness drives obedience. We see and we do. We are believing and we are obeying. That's the dynamics here. I wrote seeing by a verse and then I wrote obeying by a verse and circled it all the way through. If you were to look at the margin of my Bible, it's just blood red with ink. Just see and obey, see and obey. That's what the connection here. And through seeing and obeying, they all are receiving commendations. Verse two, the people of old received commendation. Verse four, God commending him by accepting his gift that was able. Verse um, five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And if you look at the end of the chapter, verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, there's a commendation. That's the word martyria. There's a witness of God on the life of someone who sees this side of eternity. They see God. And we as believers see those who've gone before us and we see their commendation in our hearts. We know these people, they're familiar to us. They're familiar like when Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus on Mount Transfiguration and Jesus stripped back his flesh and showed his glory. But you had Moses there and Elijah there. Peter, James, and John, they were in awe of Jesus, but they were in awe of these men whom they loved, who they recognized by name. They never met them before, but they were precious to them. That's the preciousness of this chapter. We see those who've gone before us. We look, Hebrews 12, at the end of the finish line, and we see Jesus in our mind's eye, and we run toward him. We run towards heaven by faith. 
but you got to have it. You got to have faith if you're going to have this kind of Christian life. If you're going to have a Christian life at all, you have to understand it's by faith, by faith. It's this kind of sightedness that drives us. Well, we need to define faith. If we're going to understand how we must have it, then we have to define it. Look at verse 1. This is defining faith. Faith is, number one, convictional. It's convictional. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is convictional. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, faith is different than anything that we drum up within ourselves. Thomas Schreiner, he put it this way, this great theologian. He said, the author of Hebrews doesn't ask the readers to look to themselves and to summon up all their energy to persevere until the end. What is What it means is to endure by trusting God until the end. But what is this trust like? Well, it's different than trusting your gas pedal to stop your vehicle, which isn't always the case with Alaska. I know that breaks down, but with the ice, I know. It's all right. Work with me. Okay. It's just my driving that's bad. All right. I get it. All right. Um, anyway, and it's, it's not, you know, human faith where you're trusting a doctor who's going to work on an internal organ trusting that the chef, you know, washed his hands and the food that he's presenting to you from the kitchen is is not poison. I mean, we have trust. We trust that the light's going to turn on when you flip the switch. You trust the faucet. It's going to produce water. We're trusting. We're trusting things all the time. Disney says, trust your heart, right? The existential um, false preacher guru says, put your faith in faith, and believe in yourself and great things are going to happen to you and for you. It's all bunk. This is faith. If you want to learn what faith is, that's saving faith and faith that is sanctifying faith, where you live your Christian life by faith all the way to the end, then we have to define it here. This is not a comprehensive definition, but this is a core definition to faith. This gives you the inside information about what really needs to have happened and is happening in your heart when you claim to have faith. Faith is convictional. Faith is a gift. If I can define it a little bit more broadly, it's the assurance of things hoped for. This assurance is a gift of God in your life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, verse 8, Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So faith is a gift. Faith is a grace. We, before we're saved, are dead, right? You were dead spiritually. You didn't understand really who God was and is. And God sparks life in you. He causes you to be born again. He turns the lights on and then you start to believe. That's faith. That's the gift of faith in your life. But you say, isn't faith something I'm doing? Well, it starts with God, he awakens you, and then you are exercising faith. And it's by this exercise that you are saved. It's by God's grace, and it's through faith, instrumentally. It's through faith. It's amazing. It's mysterious. God brings you to life by his grace. You didn't do it. You didn't bring yourself to life. 
He sparks life in you and you believe, you see Jesus Christ and you go, I believe. Someone's telling you the gospel. This is the human perspective. Remember Paul and Barnabas to the Philippian jailer? Doors are flung open. They stay in jail. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe, exercise faith. And that jailer had been awakened by God in that moment. So he believed. And guess what? So did his household. They were sparked by God's grace, but they were acting in faith and being saved. It's amazing. John three sixteen. whoever believes, the word believe is the same word in the original language for faith. Pistis, it's believing. Anywhere you see believing, that's faith. And faith is believing. Again, Hebrews 10, a few verses before chapter 11, verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. This is what it means to be going in the Christian life. You've come to life and then you're living by faith. Romans 1:17, the righteous shall live by faith. There's another usage. Not only are we saved through this gift of faith and we are growing by faith. There's an object of our faith. The object of our faith is Christ. We're believing in someone other than ourselves. We're believing in the truth of the gospel. In fact, in the New Testament, we're called to fight the good fight of faith. We're to fight to guard the truth of the gospel. Jude 1 says as much, we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Faith is amazing. Faith is what you're exercising when you are alive spiritually. James kind of puts the the full and final word on this saying that if you don't have works, then your faith is dead. James 2, 17 and 18. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead, is dead. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. How do you know if you have saving faith? Well, it's going to do something. It's going to act. It's going to produce spiritual God glorifying obedience. The culture says, believe in yourself. The word of God says, believe in God who is Christ. Believe in the saving gospel. Well, how do you recognize if you're running by faith? How do you know if you have this in your life? Well, it is convictional. Faith is the, do you see the word assurance? You could also translate that as certainty. Faith is certainty. It's not a divine wish. A lot of people say, have enough faith. Believe in yourself. Keep going. That's not what we're talking about. It is a settled conviction. Now, there are lapses in this conviction in our Christian lives. There are times when we doubt, and I understand that. But the believer will will believe and will keep believing by conviction. It's the assurance of things. What is it talking about? Saying the assurance of things hoped for. Things hoped for here is a target of heaven. We hope for heaven. Some places, some translations translate this as the substance of things hoped for. 
Faith is substantive in our hearts. It's a strong mindset. Again, Abraham and Sarah, if you'll skip ahead, look at verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Skip down to verse 14. For people who speak thus, Abraham and Sarah, thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Skip down to 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one, a heavenly one, a city that's prepared for them by God. It's being convictional. This is, by the way, not a New Testament phenomenon. Any believer that's ever been a believer, Old Testament, New Testament era has faith. A skeptic is someone who says, well, I believe in Jesus, but I also need philosophy. I believe in Jesus, but I also need these evidences. I believe in Jesus, but I also need this religious experience. I believe in Jesus, fill in the blank. That's not saving faith. It's not saving faith. You can be saved and be skeptical, but you can't believe in something plus Jesus for your salvation. It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone who saves. Look at this. It's the conviction or the certainty of things not seen. It's stuff that you don't see. Now, this leads us right into verses 2 and 3, which serve as illustrations or examples of things that we don't see or have not seen, and yet we believe in them, that they are reality to us by faith, by faith. First of all, faith seeing what is unseen, verses 2 and 3, the first thing that we see through the eyes of faith are people of old. And I've already mentioned this for by it or by saving faith, this certainty, the people of old receive their commendation. They were affirmed. Again, I've kind of already made this point. None of the New Testament Jewish early Christian believers knew any of the people personally that are listed here in this chapter. And yet all of these New Testament early church by Jewish descent Christians loved and respected these people deeply. They were the heroes that they were raised to love and know about. They were taught by their parents, these stories of these people And they love them. And so the author here is trying to stir up their faith, saying, don't return to some kind of Jewish tradition. Don't return to religion. Don't give up the fight if you're persecuted. Don't give up running for Jesus if you're tempted to do something wrong. Don't quit. Don't quit because all of your heroes didn't quit. All of your heroes persevered by faith. We know more than they did because we know the full revelation of the gospel. These New Testament Christians were grasping the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But the author nevertheless says, look back at them and be inspired by their dogged perseverance. Now, one who's not listed here is Daniel. 
Uh, It might be that Daniel's alluded to with the shutting of the mouths of the lions at the end of the chapter, but also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are not mentioned either, but I love their faith. The Hebrew teenagers taken on Babylonian captivity. Daniel 3, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're being challenged to bow to the idol erected to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And verse 18, here's faith. But even if not, One translation, even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is conviction. These three Hebrew boys knew that they would be either spared through a supernatural intervention where they were protected from the fiery furnace or that they would be delivered in heaven. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar saw four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, not hurt the appearance of the fourth like the son of the gods. We too need this commendation. We run for this commendation and we look and we see what is unseen in our hearts. In verse two, we look back at all these stories and say, you know what? They did it. They ran the race. They were commended. We too will experience the same Matthew 25, 23, can't you put yourself there one day? His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. All right, here's the second illustration. The second illustration is not only the people of old, but the creation event. The author of Hebrews is saying, reach all the way back to the beginning of time as if you were there. You remember, this kind of is different than the rebuke of God to Job. Job in his pride was, was questioning God and his trials. And at the end of Job in Job 38, God confronts him and says, were you there? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse four, tell me if you have understanding, Job. All right. Now, that's important because Job needed to be humbled, and he wasn't there. He's not God. God is God. God is creator. But the author here is taking a different angle with the creation event. He's actually, by contrast, saying that we are supposed to look back at the revelation as if we're watching a movie, as if we were there, better than watching a movie. He wants you to go there through the eyes of faith at the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's as if we see it because we see it and believe it through the eyes of faith. Believing in creation takes faith. It's by faith. In verse three, this is the first usage of the phrase by faith, the instrumental usage. How do you understand creation? Well, it's by it, by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God. The universe, the word universe is also translated ages. It's the idea of all of the operations of all of creation as the universe 
comprehensively. It's amazing to think of the full, vast, incomprehensibly large universe. No matter how much we see things with a Hubble telescope or, or venture out in our mind to think about how vast the universe is and all of its galaxies with all of the billions of stars, it's incomprehensible to us. I mean, God is, transcends all of that time and space and he's incomprehensible, but the universe itself is incomprehensibly huge in its macrosphere and then in its microsphere. If you think about the micro universe of what we can't see with the naked eye on the atomic level, it's massively incomprehensibly sophisticated and something that we cannot understand. It's unbelievable. And yet by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. The word here is not logos for word of God, but word is rhema. That means this is something that God spoke into being. God is God because he is the creator. He is the creator and we are the creature. Those definitions are so foundational for our understanding of who we are and who we are not. God is creator. God is the only one who speaks something out of nothing. It's the Latin phrase ex nihilo. It's out of nothing. God speaks and it is there. It's the power of God being creator. There's kind of two vantage points that we're running into between verse two and verse three. Verse two is a ground up vantage point. We're looking at people of old receiving commendation from God. Verse three is heaven down where we're seeing God create what wasn't there into what is here and incomprehensibly so. It's massive. How big is our God? It's beyond our comprehension. Your understanding of creator, it does fill in your understanding of you. It does. And in our culture, in our day-to-day, not even on a subtle level, but on an aggressive level, our culture through media is trying to erase God from the culture, specifically in terms of him being creator. His Universal sovereign position as creator means something. And let me tell you what it means. It means that you as the created are accountable and answerable to the creator. Do you understand that? Can I get an amen? It's kind of a humble amen, right? We answer to the one true God and it's established on him being Creator, The accountability goes deeper and we see this in the refrain of Revelation 4 and then 5. He's not only, Christ is not only creator, but he's also savior. So you either have believed on him as savior and you'll sing that to God's glory for all of eternity, or you have rejected Christ as the one true way to God's savior and you will utter cries of terror in hell for rejecting that for all of eternity. I pulled off my shelf this week. I just kind of was looking in my section of in my library. I actually have hardback books still present in my library with cobwebs and smells and odors and things. No, 
But oh, it's an old book, and it was from 1972. It's 47 years old. It's as old as I am. And uh, but I pulled this book off, and I don't know where it came from. I think it might have been donated to me, and it was marked up. It's a great book. It was by Francis Schaeffer. And uh, it's called Genesis in Time and Space. And I was going to try to, you know, read and do my normal study. And suddenly I was diving into this book and it was just opening up all kinds of things to think about in terms of creation. Schaefer boiled everything down nearly 50 years ago and it didn't lose relevance even to today at all. Brilliant people do that. He basically said that Man's options regarding how we got here can be distilled down into four categories. Man is shut up to relatively relatively few options. So here's the first category. Once there was absolutely nothing, that's one category. Second, everything began with an impersonal something. Third category, everything began with a personal something. And that's the category, that's the Christian category, which means someone began everything a personal someone. And then fourth, and we're not going to touch this with a 10 foot pole, but that's some kind of concurrent dualism where God and matter have always coexisted. Just forget I said that. Just trying to be true to what Schaefer did here, but with absolutely nothing, he said, nobody purports that everything has come from nothing an absolute nothingness. And he describes absolute nothingness like this. He does a little bit of a mental philosophical gymnastic he's want to do. He said, if you put everything that's created, all of creation, everything, and create in your mind a circle, and that circle represents everything that is created, and in the middle of that circle is absolutely nothing, now remove the circle. He says, nobody believes that there wasn't some kind of atomic energy, movement, force, will, primordial soup, something, an amoeba, whatever, that kicked this thing off. But see, the problem with evolutionary theory is even the smallest molecule came from somewhere, didn't it? Somebody had to kick that into motion for those things, like, you know, like the tornado that goes into the junkyard, whirls around and and spits out an F-22 jet somehow. That's sort of the theory of evolution, Something had to kick off this big bang. It takes faith to reject that. It takes faith to believe in a God who created everything. Even professors um, and theorists and secular scientists are even rejecting evolution. Now there's a Professor T.L. Moore of the University of Cincinnati said, quote, to talk of the evolution of thought from sea slime to amoeba, from amoeba to self-conscious, a self-conscious thinking man means nothing. It is the easy solution of a thoughtless brain. You know, when you think of how beautiful creation is, how spectacular it is and how we enjoy it here every day. I mean, were you looking at the sunset yesterday? Just gorgeous walking around. 40 degree weather in the middle of November. I mean, what, what's happening? Who cares? I'm not questioning anything. <laughs> this is awesome. But it's just the beauty of God. It makes you want to pray. It makes you want to praise the Lord to see that God is the loving, intelligent, 
master creator of all things that we enjoy, master creator and master sustainer. He's the one that started history and he's the one that is taking history somewhere and we're riding along in this. It's not an impersonal being that created everything. It's the personal trinity. Genesis 1:26, when he made man in our image, he said, let us make man in our image. The us can speak to God's majesty, but it also, I believe, implies the Trinity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at creation. There's intimacy, there's love, there's glory. This is why people who are created, and I got this from Schaefer, I loved it. People are longing for connection and love with other people. Why? Because that longing and connection is initiated in the creation. There was personal love and design and fellowship. The inner Trinitarian fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed for all of eternity. And then time begins and this is initiated into our existence. It's within our spiritual DNA. Creation is a miracle. And man left to his own sin clouds this in a twisted judgment trying to explain something that can only find its origin in God. There was once a piano. It was filled with mice who lived in it all their lives in a large piano. Stay with me. The music of the instrument came to them from their piano, filling all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. At first, the mice were impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music through though invisible to them, someone above yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. Then one day a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He pondered how he had found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret, tightly stretched wires of graduated links that trembled and vibrated. They must revise all their old beliefs. None of none but the most conservative evangelical mice, I added that, could any longer believe in the unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were not the secret. Great numbers of hammers now dancing was now the secret that were dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, though the pianist continued to play. That was from Leadership Magazine. That was 1983. Where are we now? Even in the church, I don't even think the church at large accepts an analogy like that as credible. Let's go back to Genesis 1. just want to look at this for a minute. It's the first page in your Bible. Well, actually, it's probably page 9, something like that. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. I read it in terms of verses one through five, because I believe all that happened within one day because evening and morning to me in my natural, normal reading of scripture, my natural, normal experience of life represents a day. And I think if you believe in God creating something out of nothing, you can believe in a miracle like this. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Moses, and Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. um, Moses in Exodus 20 in the law is describing the Sabbath day. He says, remember the Sabbath day, same word, yom, same word that's used to describe six literal days in chapter 1 is the same word he's using in Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it, you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Look at verse 11. For in six days... And I take this as literal because he's been talking about literal days. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Just think it's the normal, natural way to read scripture. I think this is a narrative account. It is poetically written, but it's narrative. Look at verse five, the first day. Then you go to verse eight and God called the expanse of heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Skip down to verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening And there was morning the third day. You say, well, these days could be translated as long periods of time. I just don't think God under the inspiration of scripture would try to confuse us on page one of our Bibles. I just don't. And I think Moses is saying evening and morning, evening and morning. That's describing day and night. You say, well, verse 14 is when the stars came to be. Well, I believe God is supernaturally powerful enough to create an evening and morning before he creates in verse 14, the greater light and the lesser lights. Verse 14, God said, let let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give the light above the earth. And it was... So, and God made the two lights, the two great lights, verse 16, the greater light, which is to speak of the sun, the sunlight to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. He's being very specific about seasons, about stars, about sunshine, about 
moonlight. These are dynamics that we readily go, oh yeah, I know that. Oh yeah, I got that. Okay, I've seen that. I've seen those stars. I've seen this season. I've seen it. I've seen it. Morning, evening, morning, evening, day, day, day. Got it, got it, got it. Miracle. Some great theologian named Pete Johnson came into my office earlier this week. He said, look, what I want to say to someone who is believing in a long earth or an old earth perspective is this. If God is going to one day create the new heavens and the new earth instantaneously as we read in Revelation, then why couldn't he have done it from the beginning? Just think about it. God is one day going to subsume the earth with fire, just like he radically covered it with a flood and then caused catastrophic things to happen with floodwaters in our world and then dried it all up. And then humanity sort of repopulated. And then he's going to burn it all up again with fire, Second Peter says. And then going to create the new heavens and the new earth. And it's going to be just coming together in this amazing, powerful way that heaven's vision is revealed in Revelation 20 and 21. It's amazing. But all of this is God's power that's on display. God creating things that we can't fully comprehend. Even science can't get a full handle on what light is dynamically. People are continuing to theorize like mice in the piano going, okay, it's this, it's that. It's amazing that God said, let there be light. I don't believe in a long earth or a theistic evolution. That's uh, Genesis 1, 2, and then verse 3, the white spaces there. A lot of times people will create this long gap of time and space and say, that's the dark history before God said, let there be light. But I don't believe in that because there was no sin in the creative work of God. It was, as the Bible says in verse 31, a creation that he looked down upon that he had made by day six, and he called it very good. It's very good, meaning there was no sin in this world. There was no sin in the terra firma. God had created something that was paradise and beautiful. There was no death and dying, so there was no evolving that was taking place. You say, well, how am I supposed to understand verse 2? The idea of the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. He created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, the sphere of the heavens and the sphere of the earth, these two world um, dynamic and, and it's it's one world, but it's one universe, but you kind of have this, this area that needs stars and this area that needs plants and animals. And so how do we understand Genesis 1? Well, verses 3 through 13 chronicle for us day 1, day 2, and day 3. And so if you understand that the earth is like this canvas that God's going to paint on, in day one, in day two, in day three, it's like a lump of clay on the potter's wheel that is without form and void. Well, he's solving the form of it in day one, and day two, and day three. 
He's creating dry land and forming the earth and forming the sky. And then verses 14, all the way to the end of the chapter, he's solving the void of the earth. He's filling it up, filling the heavens with stars, filling the oceans with animals and filling the skies with bird and filling the land with vegetation. Back to Hebrews 11.3, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Something out of nothing. This is the miracle of creation that only God could do. And it takes faith to believe it, to believe in a, a personal God like this. Everything visibly to, visible to us came instantaneously through God's creative design. Faith embraces this truth. Psalm 33, 9, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, it stood firm. Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you. This is speaking of Christ, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things by your will and existed and were created. I'm going a little bit long. Indulge me. Just got a couple more things I have to say. Why is this important? Our culture is increasingly becoming identity-less. It's in a crisis. It's in a crisis. There's a large attack on masculinity and femininity in our culture. And it all comes back to God's creative order. Science is trying to disrupt and erase God. I'm not against science in and of itself, but there are these liberal agendas that are trying to say that there is no God. Monogamous marriage is being sort of passe, and now it's moving into the realm of core identity. And if you look at Romans 1, how God created everything and how the society is suppressing the truth of God being creator in unrighteousness. Creation is declaring the glory of God. God's invisible attributes are on display through creation. And all of this is being suppressed and people are going, la, 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 la. I don't want to think about that because I don't want to be accountable to that. And Romans 1 says that they worship the creature rather than the creator. I want to worship the universe because I'm the center of it and I'm the pinnacle of it. So worship me. So we have to choose God as creator or self as creator. Either God is God or we are God. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. And so people exchange natural desires for unnatural desires and are blurring the lines between manhood and womanhood. I think when you start to interpret Genesis 1 metaphorically or in different ways, then suddenly Adam is in jeopardy. Is there historic Adam? Is there historic Eve? And then you blur the lines there in terms of masculinity, femininity. People are preaching some kind of androgynous being between Adam and Eve now to obscure the accountability of that, to obscure purity in marriage. You take away the first Adam and it jeopardizes our understanding of our need for the second Adam, right? Which is Christ. 
That's the agenda that's going on. Listen to Schaefer again. We lose our sense of God being in charge of history. This is 50 years ago. History is going somewhere. We are lost in uncreatedness. We are autonomous without solutions, without answers. Once one removes the createdness of all things, meaning and categories only become some sort of leap and even without drugs, into an irrational world. Modern man's blackness, therefore, rests primarily upon losing the reality of the createdness of all things. All Christians know truly, even though not exhaustively, why something there is. Look, Christians are the number one people who can know their why, right? And we know why this world has come. He says, we know why the world has form and men have mannishness. Kind of a unique word. I can meet modern man in despair and we can talk. There's a discussable answer as to why things are the way they are. And this, the framework for my thankfulness, as it should be for every Christian. Carl Sagan, he uh, created that show, you know, millions and millions and millions of galaxies. I don't even remember what it was. But anyway, Carl Sagan, the cosmologist, he died as an unbeliever in 1996. He was interviewed on Nightline by Ted Koppel. Some of you remember him. Sagan said, we live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way, one of billions of other galaxies of infinite number of other universes. That is the perspective on human life and culture that's worth pondering. How depressing. At the end of his life, he said, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark in our obscurity. In all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It's just indicting. A naturalist is devoid of saving faith. Let me ask you this. Do you believe in Christ convictionally with certainty? There was an evangelist of many years ago who told the story of two little boys he visited in a London hospital. The cots were side by side. One boy had a dangerous fever and the other had been struck by a truck and his body was badly mangled. The second one said to the first, say, Willie, I was down to the mission Sunday school and they told me about Jesus. I believe that if you ask Jesus, he will help you. They said that if we believe in him and pray to God, then when he died, he saved us. He'll come and take us with him to heaven when we die. Willie replied, but what if I'm asleep when he comes? What if I can't ask him? And his friend said, just hold up your hand. That's what we did in Sunday school. I guess Jesus sees it. Since Willie was too weak to hold up his arm, the other boy propped it up for him with a pillow. During that night, Willie died. But when the nurse found him the next morning, his arm was still propped up. Certainly the Lord sees the little boy's arm because the Lord sees faith. The Lord accepts faith like this little boy's faith. Willie saw his way to heaven 
It's a boy's faith that is superseding all of the learned intellectuals that by their own powers and strength can never see. The world suppresses truth, yet we have simple faith because we know that the only way to be connected to God is by faith. 